Well, we're uh, studying the teachings of Christ for a year. And last week I said that some of the teachings of Christ are bold, offensive, and uh, this morning will be no different. Uh, Last week I said that these next few sermons are going to be classified as crowd reduction sermons. Crowd reduction sermons. Because there are going to be some things Jesus says that actually chases away certain people from being his follower. You might think that why would Jesus try and chase away anybody who would follow him? He didn't have that many followers to begin with. And things were going so well for his numbers. Uh, But he does. And he does it by teaching us the cost of discipleship. I saw a video this last week of somebody who had somebody following him. He had somebody following him really close. And even though he tried to get this this, uh, person off of his trail, he just couldn't do it because this person was following him so close. Check out this video. You're like, why is he doing that to that poor little creature? He just wants to follow him. (laughs) Um, But honestly, what's going to happen this morning is Jesus is going to do that to you. Jesus is going to try and get you away from following him by teaching you some very hard things. And if at the end of it all, you're still right there close beside him, then guess what? You're a true, fully devoted follower of his. Uh, But he's going to try and talk you out of it. He's going to try and make it sound less glamorous than you could even possibly imagine. He does it because he wants you to understand that it's going to cost you everything to be his follower. To be Jesus' follower is going to cost you everything. Are you in on those terms or are you out? It's the only way he will accept you is if you are a fully sold out follower who surrenders everything to his lordship. Let's pray and then we'll hear from the Lord Jesus on the cost of being his disciple. Uh, Lord, I thank you that you are honest I thank you that you are straightforward. I thank you that you are stern, severe, demanding. I thank you, Lord, that you show us exactly what the price tag is. But you do more than that. You tell us why it's worth it to follow you. So open our ears this morning to understand what you have to say to us. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, get your Bibles open. Your Bibles open to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Verse 57, Luke 9, 57. Jesus had a lot of people following him for many different reasons. They had varying degrees of attachment to him. The cost of discipleship is aimed at getting those who are with him to stick with him on his terms, surrendering everything into his lordship. What we see today in this passage is three people who interact with Jesus. Three people. Uh, One of them, two of them come up to Jesus and say, hey, we want to follow you. One of them, Jesus goes to them and says, I want you to follow me. Each person has an individual demand placed on their life. But the individual demand placed on their life will teach you a universal demand that Jesus places on your life too. Let's meet the first guy in chapter 9, verse 57. It says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. How cool would this be if Jesus was actually out there? Where is he? Where is he? Like there's an app tracking him, right? He's, he's in Bridgeview. Oh, he's moving along to Worth. And you could actually go to him and you could actually see him with your own eyes 
And you could actually go up and say, I'm willing to follow you wherever. Well, that's what this guy did. We learn from a parallel passage in another gospel that this man was a scribe. And what a scribe was in the, uh, in the early um, days of the church was um, a Jew who knew the Bible of his day, the Old Testament, very well. In fact, he was likely involved in writing some commentaries or perhaps even um, writing up versions of the Bible of his day. So today, he would almost be like a seminary professor who taught theology to others and who wrote on it. Um, very well respected, higher ranking individual in the synagogue, um, and, and he was a scribe and he wanted to be a follower of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but Jesus was short on quality help. In fact, he had a bunch of fishermen and he had ex tax collectors and even some vigilantes that were following him. So this guy shows up and Jesus could be like, Yes, you're in, and I'm going to put you in charge of being my co teacher. You're going to tell him everything the Old Testament said about me. Uh, but no, surprisingly, Jesus says something very alarming. I'll follow you wherever you go. Verse 58, Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's saying to this guy, you can follow me, but it's going to make you homeless. You're not even going to have a pillow to rest your head on. You're going to follow me from town to town. This also kind of depicts the um, rejection Jesus was going to find. Why is he moving around so much? Well, part of it was they didn't want him in their town. They were chasing him down. They were having meetings trying to kill him. So he's moving around, moving around, moving around. You want to follow me? The Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to even lay his head. You're going to be homeless. Your reputation will take a hit. You're going to we'll wake up in the morning. I might not even tell you where we're going to go, and you won't even know where you're going to sleep that night. You're going to be without everything that you have cherished in this life. Are you in? Are you in? Well, write this down. Here's the first question we can ask ourselves. Would, would we follow Jesus? Well, what if, uh, what if Jesus made you homeless? Would you follow him then? Write that down. What if Jesus made you homeless? Would you follow him then? Jesus illustrates this by saying to the man, you know, foxes of the earth have holes. Here's a picture of a fox. A fox out in the wilderness and and Jesus is like, yeah, think of that fox out in the wild. And here's a picture of the fox's home. And Jesus is saying, you know, even a fox has that. Meaning if you went and found a wild fox and followed it, your living conditions would be better than if you were going to follow me. You'd actually have a place to stay. You'd have a place to call home. It would be an upgrade to what I'm going to give you. And then he says, birds of the air, they have a nest. Here's a picture of a bird of the air with his nest. And Jesus is in essence saying, if you went and found a wild bird and said, hey, you got a little got room for one more, you would at least have somewhere to call home. You could go and live at a zoo, Jesus was basically saying, and you'd be a little better off than following me. Are you in? Are you in? He did not make it glamorous. He basically said you're going to be a wandering, uprooted, traveling individual. You have to surrender your daily movement to me. You have to sacrifice your career for me, your comfort for me. No more predictable schedules. No more reputation. I'm going to ruin that. Not to mention safety. Who knows where we're going to go and who knows who's going to be on the road trying to steal from us. This man was forced and asked to embrace alienation from the world to travel with Jesus. He was forced to wander and leave everything at home behind to be with Jesus. He was expected to be homeless. Jesus says of himself, he calls himself the son of man. This is Jesus' favorite thing to call himself. 
Uh, it's used 81 times in the gospel, this title. Um, it means Jesus is human. Son of man can basically just mean human, a human child. But it means more than that because in the Old Testament, there was this one son of man talked about in the book of Daniel who would come and he would reign over all the nations of the earth and have a kingdom that would never be shaken. That's the son of man. So this scribe who knew his Bible would hear the son of man and he'd be like, he is the one. He's going to be a king. He's going to rule forever. I found him right here. The son of man. And then Jesus said, the son of man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. And this guy must have been like, huh? I don't get it. I know the Bible, and you're supposed to be a king overall, and where where we're going, you don't even have a pillow? Jesus was rattling this guy. And whatever this guy's motive was, maybe he knew who Jesus was, and he knew the glory that would eventually come. Jesus shook that all out and said, it's not going to be pleasant. You're going to end up being homeless for me. What if Jesus made you homeless? The truth is, this demand that he made of this one individual man was unique and special. It was a particular request. He didn't ask many other people to just drop everything and leave and become homeless. In fact, there were some people in the Bible, after they got saved, Jesus said, go home and tell your relatives what I've done for you. So it's not like a universal request that Jesus will say, great, Richard, you're a believer now. You're going to have to sell your home and you have to be homeless or whatever. Okay, He doesn't do that. It's a, it's a particular unique request of this man. But, but, it highlights something that's true of every follower of Christ in the room. The truth is, when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you become homeless. Why? Because this world is no longer your home. Your citizenship is in heaven. You're storing up your treasure in heaven. This world and its attachments mean less and less and less to you. And you have forsaken everything in this world to gain everything in the next world. Spiritually speaking, every true follower of Christ becomes homeless the moment they put their faith in Christ. Because you're not home yet. Jesus gives us an example of a wanderer who comes to this place it's not his home. He came from heaven. He wandered. He didn't have anything. He was homeless as an infant. He had to run away to Egypt with his parents and born in a manger. He shows us what all of his followers are going to feel like in this world. You're going to feel like you're alienated. You're going to feel like you're rejected. You're going to feel like you're chased around. Why? Because you're not home yet. And this world will never be your home. What if Jesus made you homeless? The particular demand of this man was special and specific, but it highlights that Jesus has a universal demand he lays on each one of us. The universal demand is that once we become his follower, this world is no longer our home. I've said this before, but it's worth saying again, discipleship doesn't always cost you something. Discipleship always costs you everything. But Jesus will make individual requests of you throughout your life. Special requests. Like, Ralph, I'm going to ask you these three things. And he might not ask that of, you know, Louis here. But the specific requests are your opportunity to show your complete surrender. You see that? And though he asks you a unique thing at a point in time, the fact that you're willing to give it up shows that you're willing to give anything up. And if you hold back and you refuse to give up the things that he requests at specific moments in time, he calls into question whether or not you are indeed a follower of him. Well, for this man, he went after his home. 
we're leaving, you're leaving home, you're going to be a, you're going to basically be a, a traveling homeless person with me, welcome, let's go. Maybe you've never known what it's like to be homeless. I know what it's like to be homeless because I was homeless for about a day. Not really, but I, I felt that way. I've shared this story before, but it fits perfectly with this. You see, I, in my college days, I was a, a I was an entertainer. I was a DJ at weddings, but throughout the week, I also worked as like costume characters and clowns. I was a clown. Does that surprise you? I've got a picture from my clown days. There's me in my clown days. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and this one day on Halloween, I dressed up like one of those homeless clowns. Do you know with the beard and the rosy cheeks and you wear like tattered clothes? It's, it's a type of clown. It's a homeless clown. And you got the little stick with the bag. You know, I was a homeless clown. Well, in the morning, we went to a shopping mall, and I did face painting. And in the evening, I, I had a DJ job, and I figured, well, it's Halloween. I'll just stay dressed up like the homeless clown, and I'll go downtown, and I'll DJ the party in costume. Well, I don't know if you know this, but no one in the city of Chicago celebrates Halloween. I was the only person in the city of Chicago dressed up for Halloween. And I went into this fancy hotel, and in the restaurant, in the lobby, I was dressed up like, like a bum, and nobody else was. And they kind of looked at me funny, like... Oh, they're being very nice to that homeless man. They're letting him earn a living here by being our DJ tonight. <laughs> so I DJ the party. It was kind of humiliating. And then after the party, I went out to my car in the parking garage, pulled my car up, you know, to the, uh, to the booth, reached for my wallet, and my wallet was gone. I didn't know if I had lost it earlier in the day at the shopping mall. So I went through my whole car, couldn't find the wallet, and I went up to the guy, that, you know, who has the power to let me out of the parking garage, dressed like a hobo, saying, this really is my car, and I don't have enough money to pay you to get it out. Can you let me go? And he's looking at me like, sure, it's your car. Sure. I said, no, sorry, I can't let you out unless you pay the, you know. So I parked, and I go back into the hotel. And I walk into the hotel, and I have to start asking people for money. It's like one in the morning at this point by the time I get everything packed up. And I walk into this hotel and I'm like, this is not going to go well. <laughs> hey, can you, uh, I have a car. Um, can you loan me 10, 15 bucks? I just, I lost my wallet. Sure you did. Sorry, I don't have any money. Okay, I'll go on to the next person. No one would give me anything. Nothing. So I had to pick up the phone and call guess who? Mom, Mom, I'm struck downtown dressed like a homeless man asking people for money. Can you come and bail me out? And of course, Mom does it. So I'm sitting outside the hotel waiting for Mom to come down and save me. It's like 2 in the morning at this point, And a real homeless guy comes up to me and asks me for money. <laughs> Apparently, I wasn't fooling him. Hey, man, you got any money? I'm like, no. Have you had a good night? Do you have any money? Because I need some money. It's time to pay it forward, my friend, okay? Even the homeless guy wouldn't give me money. So mom comes down and bails me out and saves me, and I get out of the parking garage and get home. That's, that's the only time in my life that I've ever felt what it felt like to kind of be homeless. But for Jesus, that was life. That was life. He was dependent on the goodwill of others to support and finance his ministry, he wandered around and didn't know where he was going to spend that night. He had to beg and to ask, can I stay in your place? Hey, how about you got an extra bed? Got... That was the life of our Lord. He was showing you what you were going to feel like in this world. Homeless. 
And he's showing you the universal demand that he lays on each one of us. We have to be willing to forsake our every attachment to this world, not trying to make it feel like home in anticipation of the world to come. He's going to prepare a place for us. Are we even wanting him to come back? Ask yourself this question. Is your level of attachment to the things of this life increasing or decreasing? If you follow Christ, it should be decreasing. Ask yourself this. Is your need to acquire and parade the treasures of this world becoming more intense or less intense? How about this? Are you becoming more focused or less focused on what you are storing up in heaven? Ask yourself this. Are you finding ways to demonstrate the lordship of Jesus Christ using your stuff? Or are you demonstrating the lordship of your stuff? Jesus wants each one of us to let go of our every attachment in this world, understanding that he deserves everything we have. And in a moment's notice, we're willing to let it all go. Jesus didn't expect all of his followers to surrender property but there were some in the early church who lost their, they lost their homes, they lost their land because they were followers of Christ. They were plundered, the Bible said. What if someone did show up? That's it. We found out you got baptized. Give us the deed. You're gone. You're out. That was happening back then. Um, we know from the Bible that others actually, they kept their homes. Jesus didn't make them sell it. But what they did was they opened their homes up and let the early church meet in it. Uh, they let wandering apostles who were like wanted and controversial to even have them in your home, they let those wandering apostles come in and stay, which put themselves at risk. There were some people who they sold land, they sold property for the kingdom. So I don't know in your life how you're going to demonstrate this, but there's going to be a hundred ways throughout your life that you can demonstrate your detachment from your stuff and from your earthly home. Find ways to demonstrate that because that's what Jesus demands of every one of his followers. Okay, so that's the first one. What if Jesus made you homeless? Here's the second one. What if you had to miss your own father's funeral? Would you follow me then? Write that down. What if you had to miss your own father's funeral? Would you follow Jesus then if he made you homeless? If he made you miss your own father's funeral? Where does this one show up? Well, second guy, Jesus actually seeks him out in verse 59. Luke 9, 59, Jesus says this. To another, he said, so Jesus went up to this guy. Put yourself in his shoes. Uh, Bill, hi, I'm Jesus, and I'd like you to follow me. You didn't really see it coming. You didn't expect that it would be the day, but he says, now's the time. I want you to follow me. Well, Bill's got a problem. Bill said, "Uh, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So this either means that Bill's dad had recently died, and, and he was responsible to get the funeral already, personally, or his dad was declining and like short, would die soon, and Bill needed to be there at the end of his life and then take care of the funeral. Either way, it's like priority number one in Bill's life. Well, my dad, he either died or he's going to die. I need to be there. Okay, Jesus? Verse 60, surprise response. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus just asked that Bill would miss his own father's funeral. Now, that sounds pretty heartless to me. That sounds like a heartless request that Jesus would make of a man. Why would Jesus even do this? I had to think through this a lot this week. How could Jesus even ask this? Um, Well, Jesus wants this man to have no divided loyalty whatsoever. 
the specific, unique way Jesus asks this man to show an undivided loyalty is to drop everything now, even though dad's sick or dead, right now, to come with me now. He doesn't ask that of many people, which makes this a unique request. Something in this man's heart, we don't know why, but Jesus knew that this is the first thing he had to go after in this man's heart, a primary allegiance to family. And he demanded it of him right away. We know that the Old Testament actually would demand that people would, would make it a priority to care for their loved ones, their parents, when they died. In fact, you were expected to do so culturally. It would be universally expected. There were only two exceptions in the Old Testament to people who didn't have to be closely involved in the funeral prep for their parents, and that was the high priest and Nazarites who had made a special life vow. That's it. Everyone else, you had to do it. So the fact that Jesus would say, you, to be my follower, have to come now, and you have to miss the funeral. He was almost being more demanding than the Old Testament was of followers. He demanded even his ordinary followers to come at the expense of missing that special event, which means Jesus is is requiring this great honor and loyalty. This was a special request, but here's the thing. This was also a normal request. It's special because Jesus didn't ask all of his followers to do this, right? Jesus would usually go to funerals with people he knew and loved. So this was special. This was special also because Jesus was rounding up the 72 special disciples to go out to the various towns and to get the towns ready for Jesus to pass through on his way to Jerusalem. This was a a once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-universal human timeline experience to be one of Jesus' called followers, the 72, and he was rounding them up right now to send them out, which made this a now-or-never moment. Why would he ask this? Why would he say, nope, now you need to come, no funeral, no waiting for dad to decline now. Why would he do that? Well, there was something special about the moment. And he told this man, let the dead bury their own dead, meaning your relatives are not on the same page as you. They're spiritually dead. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. I have a kingdom job for you. And he said, go and proclaim the kingdom, meaning he's calling him into ministry to go to these cities. Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. It was a now or never moment for this man. There are uh, many elite groups throughout human history that it would be pretty cool to be a part of, right? Who wouldn't want to be one of the three musketeers? Yeah? Maybe you've dreamed at some point of being one of the four tenors, or I don't know, maybe one of the Bee Gees. Uh, who knows? <laughs> a group that you'd love to be a part of, right? Just, I, felt like I was one of the Beatles, you know? I could, being a part of an elite group would be a pretty amazing thing in life. I tell you what, being one of the 72 chosen followers to go out and spread the news and then to have Jesus come into that town after you got them ready, wow, wow, drop everything and do it now. But this guy was not there yet. Dad comes first. Family comes first. Good words to live by. But there's something universal about this request. Jesus probably isn't going to swoop down in front of you while you're on the way to dad's funeral and say, turn around for me. But here's what's universal about this request. Here's what's normal about this request. Parents and family, any relative, must never stand in the way of your discipleship. Period. No one related to you can ever stand in the way of something Jesus has specifically asked of you. Okay, even though he's not going to be like, don't go to the funeral, he's going to make a thousand demands on your soul. 
and a relative, dad, fear of mom, wanting to please grandma, uh, even close, even people who are going to be family, like, well, fiancé, boyfriend thinks this, can never be a divided loyalty in your heart. Jesus gets to be at the front of the line and request anything in your life. No one, not a boyfriend, not a friend, not a grandma, not an aunt, not a father, not a mother, no one gets to stop you from doing what Jesus demands of you. And it's tragic when in their early 20s, sadly, women cater to their husbands who don't fear God, don't love God, and they let the spiritual temperature of their home go way down, and they don't give any preference to Jesus. And then in their 30s, when their kids are growing up, they try and get back after it. And guess what? You can't because it wasn't a priority. And it's not a value in your home. Jesus wants you to have him first, not family. Jesus wants you to have him in the first place. No other relative should come in the way. In other words, Jesus is not an additional priority. He's forcing you to reorder all of your priorities around him. In other words, Jesus is not an additional relationship for you to manage. He's the relationship, and every other relationship revolves around that one. You please him first. You obey him first. No divided loyalty. Whatever he asks, and even if it seems heartless to some of your family members, Jesus is your Lord. and You'll give up anything for him. Wow. This is so hard to hear. What if Jesus made you homeless? Would you follow him then? What if he was so heartless that he would ask you to miss your own father's funeral? Would you follow him then? Here's the third one. What if you had to leave your family without even saying goodbye? What if you had to leave your family without even saying goodbye? The first one is you're homeless. The second one is you're heartless. This one I would say you're hurtful. Following Jesus would make you feel like you're homeless, make you seem like you're heartless, and it'll make you be hurtful to people who don't understand your loyalty to Christ. We read of this one in verse 61. Yet another said, so this guy comes up to Jesus, says, I will follow you, Lord, but... <laughs> but. Not a good way to finish that sentence. I will follow you, Lord, but this represents delayed obedience. I will follow you, but. Uh, Parents, you know the frustration of delayed obedience, right? Put your shoes and socks on. It's time to go. You walk away. You do the million things you have to do to get out the door on time, and then you walk back, and guess what? I said, put your shoes and socks on. I didn't say put peanut butter in your sister's hair. I said, put your shoes and socks on. Where are your shoes? Where are your socks? Delayed obedience. It frustrates parents. It infuriates the Lord Jesus Christ. Delayed, I will follow you, but. But first, I will follow you, but first. Well, what was the but first in this man's life? I will follow you, Lord, but. Let me first say farewell to those at my home. This actually wasn't too bad of a request. It's like, I'm just going to go say bye. Uh, And then I'll be back, and then we can go wherever. And for some reason, Jesus saw this as an opportunity to make a specific demand of this man's life, and he said, no. They're just, it's not that far. I'm just, uh, I can make it quick. No. But they're not going to know where I went. They're just going to think I left without saying goodbye. That's going to be hurtful and confusing. Right. Follow me now. I can't even go back and say goodbye. No. Follow me now. The specific, what makes this a specific, non-normal request is Jesus didn't do this with everyone. 
there were some people like Peter. Peter was able to bring his wife on the team, on the mission trips later on. He'd bring, bring his wife with. So Peter gets to bring the family. I can't even go say goodbye to my family. Do you see how there were different requests he made of different people? Um, so it's not like this. He asked everybody to instantly, without saying goodbye, follow me now. But he's making a point. In this man's life, he's making a point. I want you to follow me when you hear my call without delay, period. No, not even a little delay. Now, right now. Now, this represents a universal demand that Jesus makes of all of his followers. While he may not show up and say, don't even say goodbye, come now. I know mom's going to freak out, but she'll figure it out now. Okay, he might not do that. But he does demand that when you find out something that he's calling you to do, whether it's the call into salvation and repent and, and find a savior or the call to obey and cast your sins aside. Now, without delay, now. Don't even turn around. Don't even say goodbye. Do not hesitate right now, now. So this is a unique request, but this is actually a universal request. Ask yourself this. Does your life demonstrate an unrestrained loyalty to Jesus Christ? Is something causing you to delay your obedience, to delay your surrender? Is someone causing you to put off the commitment you know Christ is expecting of you? If we talked about a divided loyalty, now we're talking about a delayed obedience. Jesus says, he now kind of quotes a proverb of the day. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So agricultural community, plowing is something that everyone would kind of know how to do. And, he, and this was like a proverb. It's not just like I'm plowing and I'm looking back, and so I'm kind of wobbly and I'm not really plowing a straight field. This was more of a symbolic way of saying somebody who has a job to do, but clearly their eyes are not on the job. As foolish as this person is, plowing while looking back is the person who tries to follow Jesus with a, uh, with a divided loyalty or also with a delayed obedience. Just try this on the way home today. Just try driving while looking back over your shoulder. All right? It'll be even funner if your wife is sitting next to you. Tell her, I'm going to do it. You tell me where to turn. You tell me where to stop. Okay? No one who puts his hand on the wheel and looks back is fit to drive home. Why? Because it would be disastrous. No one who puts his hand to the plow, who says, I'm going to follow Jesus, and then does this, is worthy of being his follower. What does this portray? What does this mean? It means you're not fully on board yet. It means your eyes are over your shoulder, and your heart is not fully on where Christ is leading you. Many in the, in the Bible looked back to their own disaster. Lot's wife looked back to Sodom, and what happened to her? God didn't turn too many people to salt in the Bible, but she got it. The Israelites looked back over their shoulder to Egypt and almost killed Moses because they would rather have a good meal in Egypt than wander to the promised land. Looking back, looking back. You can't follow Jesus and look over your shoulder at the same time. Looking, over, looking back at what? Well, looking back at the fun you could be having without moral restraint. The fun your friends are having without you. Looking back at what? Looking back at the money you could be making without a conscience. The money they are making by cutting corners. Looking back at what? The power I could be wielding without a coming judgment to be able to get things done like that person does. 
Looking back at what? The freedom I could be enjoying without the demands God's word places on me. Looking back, looking back, looking back. And Jesus says, nobody who's doing that is worthy of being my follower. Hey, do you have a divided loyalty in your heart? Is someone or something cutting in line in front of Jesus for primary spot? Hey, do you have a delayed obedience? Are you putting off the demands Christ is currently making on your life for someone or something or some other pursuit? He's calling into question whether or not you're even truly his follower. What if Jesus made you homeless? What if Jesus made you do something heartless? What if those who you know and love would be hurt by your behavior because of your allegiance to him? These are the demands he makes on every follower. Every follower. Now, I don't just want to give you the price, the demand, the cost. I want to also give you the value or the benefit. You might be saying, why would I give this unquestioning, instantaneous, undivided loyalty to this one person? Why would I give all that up and behave in such a way and be treated that way? Why would I do that? Thankfully, Jesus answers the question. Uh, We're going to flip over to the book of Matthew, chapter 13. And Jesus uses two short illustrations to show you why you would ever want to be this radically allied, loyal to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, uh, we'll actually start in verse uh, 45. Jesus shares the first one. He tries to tell you what the kingdom of heaven is like. When you hear the word kingdom of heaven, think about this. There is a next life element, meaning you have citizenship in the heavenly kingdom to come and you'll live forever in heaven. But there's also an earthly side of it. It means you're one of Christ's followers and you live in this life as someone who is under his spiritual rule. Okay, that's what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said in verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. There you are, a pearl merchant. Do you know about pearls? Uh, Pearls, they say, are the... Pearl is the queen of gems and the gem of queens, valued throughout the ages. Naturally occurring pearls are very rare. The way they form is something gets into the shell, of clam or whatever, and irritates it. And to protect itself, it coats this pebble or stick or whatever, coats this thing constantly over the period of many years and then creates out of that coating, it hardens up and becomes a pearl. Naturally occurring pearls are extremely valuable, extremely rare, hard to come by, and they're found in the homes of celebrities and collectors and high-end jewelry shops. But they found a way to synthetically produce them where they take it, they start the clam, they slit it open and force something in there, and they don't turn out as great, not as valuable, far more common. Now, back in this day, this guy would only have access to the real deal. So if he's out finding pearls, he's like a treasure hunter, right? And he's out looking for the, and he's probably found some of them. But then the day comes where he sees one. and He knows exactly what that is valued at. He knows what he could get for it. He knows how much it would cost. And he sees it, and because he has the trained eye to know the value And it's kind of assumed in this that maybe the person selling it doesn't quite know the value. He goes home, honey, honey, we're selling everything. What? We're selling everything. Get it all together, put it on eBay, take whatever you can get for it. Can you imagine if your husband came home and said this? (laughs) Because I found this great pearl. 
We're selling it all. We're taking it all. And we're going to go buy this pearl. Why? Because he knows that after the transaction is done, he would have far more than everything that he started with. Pearls are actually that valuable. One of the most famous pearls is the La Peregrina. In the 1500s, it was discovered. It was owned by several queens and was put on crowns and necklaces. And then it was bought by Richard Burton uh, in the 60s for $37,000. In today's dollars, he would have spent $258,000 for one pearl. Here's the picture. $258,000 going once. $258,000 going twice. Anyone? Raise your hand. Anyone? Would you pay? Would you go and sell everything that you can that you own to pay $258,000 for what? That teeny little? Go home and tell your wife you bought it and she can't wear it. (laughs) And, well, he bought it. They put it on that necklace. She gave it as a Valentine. He gave it as a Valentine's Day gift to his wife, Elizabeth Taylor. Elizabeth Taylor wore it for years. One day she lost it in a hotel room. Just walking around, reached for it. It wasn't there. She threw herself on the bed and screamed and wept and cried and got down real low to try and find it, and then she couldn't find it. Then she saw her little dog over in the corner chewing on something. Dogs. She goes over there, open your mouth, open your Pried it, and it was in his mouth. He was chewing on this pearl. Thankfully, it didn't get scratched. Put it back on the necklace. After she died, it sold for $11.5 million dollars. $11.5 million, all right? Question. If you came across at some flea market or whatever, there's this pearl. Maybe it's listed at its original value of $250,000. Knowing now what you know, which the trained eye of this pearl merchant would, that you could get $11.5 million for it. In other words, it's a no-brainer. Jesus is using this merchant illustration to say it's a no-brainer. Going home, whatever your net worth is, let's say you could scrounge up you know, $300,000, you go and you buy the pearl. What have you really lost? You haven't. You've gained. You could get $11.5 million for getting rid of everything you own. He's using this like materialistic, no-brainer illustration to show you that even if Jesus costs you everything in this life, in this world, even up to your very life, what have you lost? Answer, nothing. You've gained everything. In fact, if you're the one over there, I can't get rid of my $250,000. Who's he think he is asking me for my $250,000? You've lost. You've lost the pearl. Gaining is losing. Losing is gaining. Why would I give up my life for Christ? Why would I sacrifice my comfort, offend my family, tick these people off? Why would I lose all this, put up with this? Because it's worth it. Jot this down in your notes. Why bother? Well, first, you discovered the pearl of great price. You discovered the pearl of great price. Moses literally looked, Moses slept in a gold toddler bed. Everything in Moses' life was gold and silver, and the Bible says that he considered the reproach for Christ of greater value than all the treasures of Egypt. He turned from that vault because he knew that over here was greater. You've discovered the pearl of great price, and while you, it will cost you things in this life, you understand that fundamentally you're losing nothing, you're gaining everything Take whatever Jesus, demand whatever Jesus, I'll surrender whatever Jesus, because I know I have far more eternally 
in you. That's why. That's why you give it all up. There's a second illustration here. Why bother? Why would I follow him? Back in verse 44, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is kind of like this. It's like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Write this down. You found the treasure hidden in a field. You found the treasure hidden in a field. Everybody loves buried treasure. Not just pirates. Everybody loves the thought of buried treasure, right? There was a man (coughs) named Forrest Fenn, an 80-year-old man in Santa Fe, who was an art dealer and a collector. And 20 years ago, he found out that he had cancer and he was going to die. He had spent his life collecting treasures and storing them up. And when he found out he was going to die, he decided to do something radical. He had always loved the books on treasure hunting, and he decided to get all of his most precious valuables, put them in a box. Here's a picture of everything that he had acquired throughout his days of collecting. He had, ancient, he had gold coins, he had br- bracelets, wristbands, he had little artifacts, little animals and, and everything, and he put it all in a box. And when he, when he found out he was going to die, he said, I'm going to go out into the mountains near Santa Fe, I'm going to hide it, and then I'm going to leave clues for anybody who wants to go find it. Buried treasure. Well, then he found out he's not going to die. But he still liked the idea. So after a couple of years, he said, I'm going to go do it anyway. I'm going to go hide my most precious belongings. I'm going to bury it. And then I'm going to write a book. And it's going to give people all the clues they need to find it. The book is only found in the local bookstore in Santa Fe. It's called The Thrill of the Chase. It's only $35. But in this book, if you go there and find it, it will give you the clues necessary in the mountains of North Santa Fe to find the treasure. It includes gold coins, nuggets, pre-Columbian gold animal figures, a Spanish 17th century gold and emerald ring, turquoise beads from the 1800s. It's got everything. It's valued at over a million dollars, at least over a million dollars, if not more. Since he hid the treasure and wrote the book, 13,000 emails have come in asking for more clues. 13,000 emails, and he's had 18 marriage proposals. I'll get it out of him. (laughs) He'll tell me. Here's the thing. What if I found it? What if I went on vacation to Santa Fe, found it, found it right here? Only somehow it ended up on this lot that's for sale. Lots for sale for who knows what, $500,000. I found it. I covered it back up. I came home and I said, Multiple millions of dollars. I know right where it is, but we got to come up with $500,000 to buy the land. You in? No brainer. No brainer. Jesus is giving another illustration from this treasure hunting to show no brainer. I give up $500,000, scrounge everything I can up, get rid of it, take what I have from my loss, purchase this field, uncover the treasure. I have more. It cost me all. I now have more. Do you see the spiritual lesson here? Jesus costs you all and gives you more. If you're unwilling to give up what you start with, you forfeit the greater treasure. It's not gain. It's loss to keep it. It's not loss. It's gain to lose it. This is the spiritual nature of discipleship. And Jesus is not asking this of some of his followers. Jesus is asking this of all of his followers. Because you found the treasure hidden in a field, because you discovered the pearl of great price, you need to let go of 
everything that you hold dear in this life. You can't keep it anyway. You can't smuggle a penny into the next world. None of it will come with you. You lose it all. So if you let go of it voluntarily for the sake of Christ, you gain everything in heaven eternal forever and nothing in heaven has an expiration date on it. You gain. Why would I follow Jesus? Why would I be hurtful and heartless and homeless? Who does he think he is demanding this of me? No. Why wouldn't you? It's a no-brainer. He is everything. He owns everything. He asks everything. The question then that remains is, in your own heart, has he become everything? Here's the third point in the summary of it all. Write this down. Jesus is worth more than everything you can possibly offer him. Jesus is worth more than you can ever possibly offer him. So are you holding back anything at this point that he's demanding from you? Are you elevating anyone else to a greater place in your heart? Are you wrestling God for ownership or control over anything that he wants to be Lord over in your life? Is there something or someone that is God's chief competition for your time and your loyalty? Have you settled it in your heart that Jesus is worth everything you have, all that you are, your entire future, your very best, your first priority? And have you understood that as his disciple, he will settle for nothing less than everything in your heart? Let's take a moment to pray right now and to commit ourselves completely to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and King. Let's pray. Jesus, you're so honest. You're forthright about what it costs for us to follow you. Yes, eternal life is a free gift. Eternal life is freely granted through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But based on what we gain freely, we must be willing to surrender everything for it. Lord, thank you for honestly showing us how much it costs us to follow you. No relationship can be more important. No pursuit can be more of a priority. You want it all. And you want it immediately. Lord, we give that to you. We surrender completely to you. I pray for those here who have been holding things back from you. Lord, may they release it knowing that whatever loss they face, they will gain far more. Lord, I pray for those who are delaying obedience because something else, someone else is getting them first. Lord, I pray for those who are looking back. They know it. They know it. They're watching those who are indulging in the lives of this world, the pleasures of this world, the indulgences of this world with secret longing, secret self-pity and sorrow over what you cost them. Show them, Lord, that you are holding them back from a small fraction of pleasure and an entire world of pain. May we fully embrace everything that you demand of us, knowing that you are the king of kings, the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in a field. Whatever we lose, nothing compared to what we gain. We love you, Jesus. We worship you. Amen. 